0: Normally, um, I would invite you to turn to Mark. We've been in an expositional series going through the Gospel of Mark for several months now. Actually, we've hit over a year now. And we hit a portion of Mark in Mark chapter 9 where we were looking at Jesus' call to holiness, uh, to fight the sin, to, to get violent against the sin that you find in your life. And then we've kind of taken that theme and opened it up a little bit, used that text like a door to open and go through so we could talk about the theme, the topic of holiness. And that's what we've been talking about, sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness. So this will be a little bit of a more topical sermon this morning as we wrap up that theme, holiness and growth and sanctification. And the title of the message this morning is Holiness Complete. The idea that your sanctification is an end point. You're you're not just doing this forever and ever and ever. There is going to be a day that your holiness is completed. We're going to talk about that idea this morning, the idea of glorification. To start with a question, why is it that churches don't sing about heaven like they used to? Might wonder what I'm getting at. I read an article recently by a seminary professor named Matthew Westerholm. His entire dissertation, doctoral dissertation that he wrote, upon which this article was based, was on contemporary Christian worship. And as part of his research, he studied churches and, in particular, what churches were singing. And he took two different eras of the church, one era in America from the year 2000 to 2015, not too long ago, the last 20 years or so. And then uh, he studied a different category of churches from the 1700s up to the early 1900s. And he compared what these churches were singing about. Here's one of his observations. Quote, Among many similarities, one difference was striking. The topic of heaven, which once was frequently and richly sung about, has now all but disappeared. The article was fascinating to me. If you're interested in reading it, I can send it to you. You'll be interested to to hear some of the reasons he believes for the changes that have occurred and why it is so hard to find songs being written today about heaven. And one of the things he notes is that it has been, uh, it was the theme, it was the theme of these churches in uh, centuries past to think about heaven far more frequently because they conceived of the Christian life kind of like the story of Pilgrim's Progress, where you have Christian on a journey. You're going through life and life is hard and there's temptations everywhere you look. There's detours that will lead you on the wrong track, but you have the celestial city. And until you get there, life is going to be hard and you're on this journey. You're on this pilgrimage. You're looking forward. And so that was kind of the theme. That was the way that people thought about their own Christian lives. We're not home yet. And so the Christian life is one of longing. It's one of waiting. It's one of seeking. It's one of looking forward. But one thing that has changed that many modern songs have captured is that the focus has moved from that eternal glory that is future, to the current subjective experience of the right now realities of the gospel. Which is not wrong, but it has been so emphasized to the degree that it's almost impossible to find songs that are being written about the future glories to come. I choose the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings. You can blame me for that. And sometimes I'm looking for songs on topics And recently, I've looked for some songs on heaven. There aren't many out there. Not many modern ones that are being written. I texted one of my friends who leads worship every Sunday. I said, how many worship songs that are related to the topic of heaven do you have in your rotation? He said, hmm, let me think. His response was, not many. And I never heard back from him. I wanted to see if this idea was true, what the guy had said in the article, that we've kind of placed the, the, the main focus of our worship on what God provides for us right now in this life, uh, the glory we experience right now, to see if this is true, if this really holds up with modern worship songs. So I just searched randomly on Google, looked it up, and found a list of the top songs being sung in church right now. The number one song on this list sure there's probably other lists, but the number one song on this list was a song called Waymaker. So I don't think it's a bad song. I'm just checking it out. The first lyrics of the song go like this. You are here, you are here, moving in our midst. And I said to myself, bingo. The subjective experience of the presence of God. Great things to sing about. Things we sing about ourselves. But isn't it interesting that it seems like the things that we are now starting to neglect... Are those things that are future that we don't have a lot of songs that are about longing, that are about the ache of not having yet the glory to come. We don't like singing about the things we don't yet have. We like singing about the things that we do have, the things we are enjoying now. I don't think there's any nefarious motives in this that you know worship songwriters have a conspiracy to make us forget about heaven. But it does get me thinking about. The undercurrents. What is it that would cause our thinking to move away that would cause the poets and the songwriters among us to write less about heaven and more about right now? Why is it that it's so hard to find the songs that are future-oriented reflecting on what heaven will be and the glory to come? Why aren't we singing about the glories of heaven anymore? Why is it that it once was such a so frequently sung about, so often built into the services of the church in the 1700s. And today, just to find a song that's about heaven is so hard. I think there's a reason, probably many reasons, but one main reason would be this. That the doctrine of glorification is sliding into the peripheral. The doctrine of glorification—that is, that we as believers will be glorified in Christ one day in the future—that idea is not as exciting to us as the idea that God's with us right now, and this probably also has to do with the, the has to do with the idea that we love subjective emotional experiences. We love singing about what God is doing in my heart and how I feel about it right now. Rather than singing about the things I lack that I'm looking forward to in the future. So what we're going to talk about this morning in our series on holiness is that day that will come where holiness will be complete. Sanctification will come to an end and we will be glorified in Christ in heaven for all eternity. I hope that this will be an encouraging sermon, something that will lift our hearts, lift our spirits, lift our eyes to heaven, that we will be encouraged to keep walking through this hard journey of life, to be encouraged to press on, to take one step after another, even if it's dark. This is what the Bible teaches, that one day, every believer will be glorified in Christ for all eternity. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this... He called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may obtain Christ's glory. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, he has called you, Christian, into his own glory to share in it, to enjoy it. You guys remember a few months back the the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus reveals his glory to the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. It was was so bright and powerful as something they couldn't handle to observe. They had to shield their eyes. In Matthew 13, 43, you know what Jesus says? He says, Then the righteous, that's you, believer, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. In other words, the transfiguration of the glory of Jesus Christ is a preview of our own coming glory. Now one day we will share in, obtain the glory of Christ himself, not because we've earned any accolades, but because of the grace of God to bring us from lowly, dead, hell-bound sinners and transform us into glorified saints of light who will rule with Christ for all eternity. Glorification, then, is the final step in the application of redemption. Follow this. Salvation was finished at the cross. Christ cried out, It is finished. And he was referring to the accomplishment of our salvation, the payment of our sins. And in his resurrection, it is sealed and complete. However, the fullness of that salvation that he purchased for us in his death and resurrection is not entirely applied until glory. In other words, the final piece of the puzzle is the glorification of the believer in Christ for all eternity. This is the end game. When we are finally brought home, sharing in the glory of Christ, salvation will be completely and totally applied to every believer. This will include new perfected bodies. This will include no longer ever having to struggle with sin ever again. This will include enjoying the new heavens and the new earth. And actually, if you read the New Testament, you'll find... And this was really an encouraging thing to do. I would encourage you to to do the same. To find all these passages that are talking about the coming kingdom and the glory that will be shared with every believer. And notice how he uses the coming glory. The authors use this doctrine of glorification to motivate you to live holy lives. And I want to show you one of these in Colossians 1. Go to Colossians 1 and... This will kind of set the table for the, the topic, and then we're going to look at glory and take four different looks at glory, but this will set us up of how important it is to be heavenly minded. In chapter 1 of Colossians, in verse 3, Paul is thanking God for this church that he loves, this church that has been fruitful, the Colossian church. In verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since, verse 4, we heard. Of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, okay? What marks the Colossian church? You see two traits there. Faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. You see that? This church has a love for the saints, a self-sacrificing love for the saints. You'll get to see in verse 6 that this church is bearing fruit and increasing and Through the Colossian church, much good ministry is happening. There's a lot of fruit. Well, why are they this way? Look at the grammar here. Look at the text. Look at verse 5. At the end of verse 4, this love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because, here's the cause of this love, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The reason the Colossian church is overflowing with acts of love and bearing fruit and, and living by faith is because they have set their hope in heaven. You ever heard someone say he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good? Paul would disagree. Paul would say you're not going to be any earthly good, spiritually speaking, unless you're heavenly minded. Because the hope that you have in heaven will be the impetus of love to people on earth. If you're grappling with the things of earth, if your grip is like a vice on the things of this world, you will not be able to love people. But if you release the things of this world and you grab hold of your hope in heaven, suddenly you'll be free to live for that which is eternal and you'll be able to live... For God and for God's people and you'll be able to live a life of love and holiness and purity and fruit bearing just as this Colossian church is. So we need to be a people who ache for heaven, long for heaven, look for heaven, think about heaven, set our eyes on heaven, fixate, obsess over glory that is to be ours. That's the kind of people we ought to be. And in, contrary to how you think that might play out, the more you are thinking about heaven and glory and Christ and the future and the fullness of the revelation of God and seeing him as he is and being known as he is, the more you will lay your life down in this vapor of a life to love people that God puts in your path. You will be freed to love once you get rid of the things of this world that are controlling you and you grab hold of heaven. And so this morning is about thinking about heaven. I want us to be like Richard Sibbs. It was said of Richard Sibbs that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Let that characterize your own life. Let heaven just sink into your very bones, that you dwell on it, you think of it, you exude thoughts of glory in heaven, and it'll set you free. The last few weeks have been somewhat heavy in talking about the violence of Christianity and cutting off your your hand and your eye and things like that and the pursuit of holiness and last week even. The call to put off sin and to be renewed in the in your minds and then to be putting on righteousness as we seek sanctification. I hope this encourages you. I hope this morning we get encouraged. We get fired up. The fuel gets in the tank to keep going to war with sin knowing that there's an end game here. That there's a future here that we will rejoice fully and completely in glorification as jesus shares his own glory with us we want to see this morning like we're on that pilgrimage like we're making our way down the narrow path and we're going to pause on this hilltop we're going to look out in the distance we're going to go, okay there's the celestial city there it is there's the house of zion that's where we're going to feast we're not there yet but that's where we're going Okay, this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look forward to the glories to come. And here's our first look. Our first look is this. Is that we need to understand that the glory comes after the suffering. You say, I thought we were going to look at the glory. Well, we'll get there. The glory comes after the suffering. This is actually an incredibly important point that is a cause of all kinds of problems. Turn to Romans chapter 8. If you, if you can kind of just... Stay in Romans chapter 8. We'll we'll probably be looking there the most, although we'll jump around a little bit. Romans chapter 8, if you look there in verses 12 to 15, he's describing this call to kill the flesh. It's very much uh, related to Jesus' call to cut off hands and it causes you to sin. Verse 13, you've got to put to death the flesh, the, the deeds of the body. Because we're led by the Spirit of God and He calls us to be adopted, to cry out, Abba, Father. All that's there. And then look at verse 17. Describing us as the children of God, He says, And if children, then heirs, that is that we are going to inherit the kingdom with Christ, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. We will be glorified with Christ provided what? We suffer with Christ. Paul makes it clear that there is a glory to come, but the glory is not yet right now. There's suffering. That's an interesting way of putting it. We're Christ, or we're heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. That is, if we forsake worldly acclaim. We forsake worldly applause. We hold fast to biblical truth no matter the cost, even facing persecution if necessary. If that's us, if that we have forsaken all to have Christ, we even take on the suffering that that this world throws at us, then we too will be glorified with Christ. That's what he's saying. We will share in his glory. The point is this, that suffering is part of the game, church. Suffering's part of the calling. Suffering's part of the journey. This is what we go through on our way to the celestial city. The idea that the Christian walk is skipping from mountaintop to mountaintop, emotional high to emotional high, is unbiblical and untrue and will set us up for immense disappointment. Some people have been taught that they ought to experience this emotional high all the time as they follow the Lord. Just life is going to be awesome. And then they show up to church, and sometimes the whole point of the church service is to support this idea that the Christian life is always amazing, all the time. Every moment is easy. If we just lay down our lives and look at Christ, all of it is awesome, all the time. And why are you crying? Be happy. Put on a smiling face. Look at what's going on here. And it seems that sometimes. Christians start to imbibe this mindset that the glory has already come, the glory is fully here, it's already right now, and if I'm not experiencing it, then something might be wrong with me, or God might not even be keeping His promises, because He said it's all supposed to be here and now, but I'm not experiencing it, and we don't know how to handle life that way. It's really important to understand that there is suffering in this life. And that Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That if your eyes are open to the realities of the world, you weep, you suffer. Look at verse 18 though. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, there's going to be all kinds of suffering we face in this life there's going to be bodily suffering, your is going to be wasting away, spiritual suffering as you agonize over indwelling sin, social suffering as we mourn the destructive life choices of people we love, there's going to be persecution, suffering because we 're taking a stand for Christ. and yet Paul's saying, if you put all the sufferings of all our lives and all the various kinds of suffering, you put it on a scale, and then you put the glory to come. It's like a popcorn kernel against Mount Everest. The glory to come will outweigh any suffering we've ever experienced. In fact, the glory to come will cause us to look back on all our pain and all our suffering and to go, oh, that's why. And it will redeem even the darkest moments of our lives because we'll see how it was all woven into the tapestry that would end up for our own good in God's glory. We will rejoice In the glory to come, because we will see that no suffering was wasted at all, it is important to note that suffering comes first. Expect that, church. There is a kind of theology that promotes a kind of triumphalism. You know, we we think that it's all glory now that really hinders our Christian lives. There are books titled, Heaven is Here. Songs titled the same name. Heaven is here. And I am concerned about what that kind of mindset does for the church. One, it might cause us to stop thinking about a future heaven because we think it's here all the time. Westerholm in that article I referenced earlier, he says, when the evangelical worship services imply that a believer should experience complete victory now, they prepare people for inevitable disappointment. Church, you need to learn to ache. You need to learn to long. You need to understand that the glory that we experience now, there is some glory. Jesus, uh, as we look to the glory of Christ, Paul even says that we can see, we can behold the glory of Christ, we can be transformed by it, we can have knowledge of the glory of Christ, but we can't fully experience it just yet. This is why we lament from time to time. Because it's not all here yet. It's suffering, then glory. It's death, then life. It's a cross, then it's a crown. The glory is to come, but not yet. Here's the second look at glory. Glory is certain. Glorification is certain. Now go a few verses ahead in Romans chapter 8 and let's look at Verse 28 to 30. This is like the, the mountain peaks of the glories of salvation, these verses. They are remarkable in the ex- helping us explain all that God has done for us and what he has done in his sovereign grace to redeem us. And look at verse 28. It says, and we, we know, we know, there's a certainty there, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, for those who love God, every single thing in your life is working together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now watch this. Verses 29 and 30 are sometimes called the golden chain of redemption. That is, Paul goes on to describe here, those whom God has chosen in eternity past will be glorified with certainty. Watch this. 29. For those whom... He, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what does this mean? Well, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, are all acts of God and what he has done to redeem his people. You say, what do they mean? Forenew. That means that in eternity past, God set his love upon this people. Predestined. That means prior to their coming into existence, he destined them for adoption as his own children. Called. That means at some point in their lives, God, through sovereign grace, called them into spiritual life, granted them faith so that they might come to trust in Jesus justified every single one that he called he then granted the free gift of righteousness and upon that righteousness he declared them to be innocent and righteous for all eternity and what does that mean for those who are justified all who are justified will be glorified this week as i was studying this i came across an article about a pastor um, when he was studying through to teach the book of Romans as he began the book of Romans he had a view of God that was basically you know God offers salvation to kind of everyone out there and some people choose and some people don't and that if you choose Jesus you can go with him for a while but you might lose your salvation and you can fall in of grace and out of grace and and as he began studying this he came to this these verses and he said I couldn't get around the grammar here because the grammar is quite clear Of the number of people whom God foreknew, how many make it to predestination? All of them. That's what it says. And of the number who are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, how many does he call? All of them. And those whom he calls, it says he justifies. Does any get lost between the calling and the justification? No. And all those whom he justifies, how many will be glorified? All. In other words, in eternity past, God, he chooses Through his foreknowledge to predestine and then to call and then to justify. And all those who he chose will be glorified. None will be lost. And what does that mean for us? That if God has called you to trust in his son and you find yourself as having faith and you believe all of this. What you know with certainty that you will be glorified. There will be nothing that can break this chain. This chain is an unbreakable chain that all those he has called to himself will be glorified. Take it to the bank, church. You are secure. You will not be lost. You, will be, uh, you are committed to by an omnipotent God. He has made sure of it that he will not let you go. In fact, this is part of the whole purpose of his creation of the whole world. Jonathan Edwards has a way of um, planting dynamite in our little man-centered worldviews, blowing them up and helping us to see that God is the center of all. His glory is supreme. Sometimes he has these paragraphs that just utterly rattle you, particularly if you're not used to seeing God as the center of all things. He said this, reflecting on these realities. He says, The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom He might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of His nature and to whom He might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in His heart And that in His way, God might be glorified. Let me unpack that. It is the point of the whole universe that God would create and redeem His bride. So that He could spend all eternity lavishing His bride in His love and His mercy. So as to demonstrate not the worthiness of the bride. But to demonstrate the greatness of His love toward those who don't deserve it. Here's what this means, church, is that ultimately at the end of the day, your glorification does not depend upon your ability to hold on to God, but on God's determination to hold on to you. You will be glorified because God will have a bride for himself. You will be glorified because God will bring you through the whole chain of redemption. He will bring you to glorification to prove the power of his grace. And he will be worshipped by every tongue, tribe, and nation because of what he has done in Christ. This is fantastic. It is so sure. It is unbreakable. You can rest in that. And you can rejoice in that. And it's for these kinds of truth that we gather every Sunday. We sing our hearts out because we go, It wasn't me. It was sheer, unmerited grace. Sovereign grace. From eternity past to choose a wretch like me? And then to see to it that I'm brought to glory? All glory be to Christ. I couldn't have done any of this. Here's our third look at glory. Glorification is bodily. I think we underestimate the, the value of this point. Because the Bible, the New Testament in particular, is very clear that the glory to come will include new bodies. You Think about that one. John 5 20 and 29, Jesus said, Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will give you a new body. He will raise your mortal body from the dead. He will give life to you. Or Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body, our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Isn't that amazing? In fact. Let's look at this a little more in detail. Look at First Corinthians. Let's go to chapter fifteen. It's dealt with most here in this chapter. If you want to read more about the resurrection and the resurrection body that is to come, you got to take a look at Romans, or sorry, First Corinthians, fifteen. He talks about the resurrection in general, or the resurrection, specifically Christ's resurrection, and then he starts talking about this resurrection body, and we're going to look at some verses. We can't go into all of them for sake of time, but verse 35, verse 35, Uh, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Just yesterday, my children and I went to Lowe's and we bought some seeds because we wanted to try to plant a little garden in our side yard. We got them out and we sprinkled them in. And I was thinking about this, as we did that, that the seeds that we put in the soil, they looked dead. Like, how is anything lifelike going to come out of these things that look kind of dead? And even when the thing grows up, if, 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 if in fact it grows up, we'll have to wait and see. If they grow up, it will look nothing like what we put in the ground. And here, the analogy that, that Paul's making is that your current body, the body that you have, the arms you have, all of this, it, there's, a, there's a correlation, obviously. But, but it's going to be also so different that your body now is like a seed, like a kernel of that which is to come. That in death we make way for something much greater. The, the glorified, resurrected body. Your body now is like a seed. Skip down to verse 42. He goes on. He says, the, so, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, he's talking about Adam there, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's Christ. Uh, just, just take a look at the words that describe your current bodies, your, your right now bodies. Um, perishable. Dishonorable. Weak natural, of dust, or of the earth. You know, even all you CrossFitters out there, I can say on the authority of the Bible, your body's weak, right? That's what it says, weak. The Bible, in other places, it says, wasting away, lowly, mortal. That's our body now. Some of you experience that really, you know, have really experienced that for this life, I mean, you, you experience the body, the pain, the, the disease, the the heartache of the things we face in the body. I mean, the kind of agony the body like ours can experience can be miserable. I mean, just this week, I had a friend from college die in a motorcycle crash. A few days later, another friend from college, both in the same class as me, died from cancer in her throat. My age, in the class with me, Death. You you, you know, it's all around you. You, you, Some of you experience it all the time in the family members and sicknesses and diseases and maybe maybe even your own flesh pain in your back and headaches and aches and pains that you're just so used to your body just suffering. And so it makes sense. He talks about our bodies as dishonorable, perishable. All our lives, we grow up to be a certain age and then it's like our bodies just start dying. Our whole lives are a sort of prolonged death, aren't they? Just falling apart little by little. And he's talking about this glorious reality that one day we will be glorified and part of the glory is that we will get a new body. And consider the words that he uses to describe the new body. Imperishable. It cannot die. Glorious. You know that word? Your body will be glorious. Majestic and beautiful. Powerful. Think of those guys on the strongest man competitions. Pulling those trucks around. Those guys will be puny compared to us in the glory to come. Powerful. It says it will be spiritual. That's not that just we're going to be disembodied spirits. It will be that we will be ruled and controlled by this new spiritual body that will be forever and permanently with the Lord. They will be new, glorious, powerful, beautiful, majestic bodies, that you will be given no deformities, no congenital diseases, no pain, no need of doctors, no need of a wheelchair. You will have a perfect body. Are you looking forward to that? Running without ever feeling tired. Climbing a tree and jumping from the highest limb and having no fear of breaking that leg. Swimming in the water, not getting exhausted, just the freedom of enjoying this creation with no bodily limitations. Think of that. Plucking out redwoods like little weeds. I mean, this will be so much fun. I like what C.S. Lewis said reflecting on this. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to, I'm not going to say who that might be here, but the most... You know, the most uninteresting, uninteresting person you could talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you'll be strongly tempted to worship. I mean the glory to come giving us the new bodies we will be in awe of the body that God gives us. You can think of the most perfect athlete now strong and sleek and fit, perfect body and the body you will get in comparison to them will make that person look like some hairless cat or something. <laughs> I I can't. What's the analogy? Some old uh, huffing and puffing English bulldog. Like These ugly creatures that our new bodies will be that much greater. And so uh, we look forward to this. It's part of the glory to come. I think it's it's okay for us to look forward to this. To to be excited about this. I I love, and you can ask Ashley about this. It's true. I, I love going to cemeteries. And Walking through the gravestones. just in our beginning of the year in January, we got away and we found a cemetery up in Julian. And some of the gravestones were there. And some of them back to the 1800s. And I just love it. I just love going from place to place and just looking at the lives, the names. I don't know anything about these people. Sometimes there's a little inscription. Most of the time it's just a name with some dates. It just fascinates me. Because you, you think of it biblically, you go, these are like seeds that have all been just scattered right here. They're all deceased, like right here. And there's going to come a day that these graves burst open. And they come leaping out. And some of these bodies will go into eternal judgment. And some of these bodies will be ushered into eternal glory. It's an amazing thought, such that even if you rewind a few hundred years, churches, particularly actually if you go back to the East Coast, you could find churches that it's still the case where you have the church building, and then like right over here in the property they had, they put up a, a graveyard. Uh, they would bury the the dead church members right there on the church premises. And for various reasons, churches haven't done that anymore, and they've moved to different things and used their land for different things. And perhaps it's for the better, but I do think we've lost something in not having a graveyard right here on the property. I mean, we've got a lot of land. Who knows? But I just think we've maybe lost something. Because what happens when you're walking by those gravestones, you're reminded of one, first of all, you're reminded, I'm going to die too. I'm going to that grave too, just like all of them. But the other thing that you're reminded of, I mean, we, we, we give up this opportunity if we have no death in our lives, no gravestones in our lives. The experience of walking among the dead, particularly the godly dead, those who died in Christ, We forfeit this if we keep it off of our minds from walking through those graveyards and say, they're going to rise. They're going to rise to glory one day. They are going to be conquering this grave. They're in it now, but they will not stay there. They will will burst out of there leaping like calves. They will be happy as all get out. They will be glorified with new bodies and they will raise with Christ and they will reign with Christ For all eternity. No saint who has died has died forever. They will rise. And every tombstone that holds one of God's children will one day break open into a new glorified saint with a new glorified body that can never die. And that body will be glorious and majestic and perfect and strong and powerful. And those of you who suffer now, listen, you will one day have a body that will be whole and healthy forever. No pain. No more suffering. No more aches. For all eternity. Enjoying Christ. I love the story of the old pastor John Ryland. His friend who was a godly preacher too. This has happened in the 1700s. His friend Andrew Gifford had died. And he was buried in John Ryland, the famous preacher, was asked to come speak at the graveside, and Gifford was put into the ground, and what Ryland said in that moment was marked by the listeners as a profound sermon. He was described as having thundered with eloquence unlike anyone there had ever heard. He actually stood up on another gravestone, and at the end of the the sermon, kind of the culminating moment, he turned to the grave where his friend was buried, his godly friend. And he began crying out, and he said, Farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors. At the mouth of this dungeon, thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment, thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare. Prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour when this whole place shall all be nothing but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. He will rise and every saint will rise and every man and woman of God will rise and we should be prepared to meet them because Christ the great conqueror will come to every grave and demand that we rise and we will be raised with him. And the body it will have will be given to us by Jesus and we will be just like Him for all eternity. And that will be glorious. But I don't know how glorious that would be if this next point were not true. The fourth point is that our glorification will be total. That is to say, it will not merely be bodily, bodily, But we will be glorified spiritually. Our very souls will be completed. The process of sanctification that we're in right now, that agonizing fight against indwelling sin that often brings us to our knees, will be done with. We will not sin any more. Isn't that glorious, those of you who are in the battle, that one day you will be no longer tempted to sin at all? You're in Romans 8, or maybe you're in 1 Corinthians 15, but go to Romans 7. Go to Romans 7. And this is that passage that describes Paul's inner fight against the sins of the flesh. And when I read Romans 7, I go, man, Paul, you you get me. Verse 18, verse 18 of chapter 7, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And I want to do it. I want to do the right thing. I have the desire. Deep down, God has given me a new heart. He's given me a new mind, the mind of Christ. The Spirit dwells in me. I want to do the right thing. But man, how often am I failing to carry out the right thing? Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep doing. You see that? You get that? Man, if, if you live it, there in Romans 7, which I hope that you are fighting against your sin so you know what Romans 7 feels like. He, he completes it. We are gonna can't look at all of it, but skip ahead to verse 24. This agonizing battle against the sins of the flesh. He says, wretched man that I am. You ever said that one? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he cries out in praise. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who delivers Paul from the body of death? It is Jesus Christ. Who delivers him from the struggle of sin? It is Jesus Christ. And who will deliver us, church, From the temptations to sin that rage within us, the war that we're in, who will deliver us? It will be Jesus Christ that will one day fully and completely put an end to the inner turmoil that rages within us, the battle against the sins of the flesh. Just as Jesus said, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. That ache that longing, that desire to one day be done with it and to have the righteousness that you so desire, one day you will be satisfied in that. You will be made pure because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He who called you to himself and sanctified you and is growing you will one day bring holiness to completion. You will be holy. You will be Pure, you will be righteous struggling brother or struggling sister consider this there will come a day that the holy God who made you will look at you with his blazing eyes of holiness and justice eyes that will pierce into your very soul eyes that can look and uncover every motivation that will know you better than you've ever known yourself, and as God looks at you after you've been glorified, he will not find any hint of sin. He will find nothing but that which brings him delight and glory, and he will take pleasure in you and he will delight in you and he will glory in you and he will sing over you and you will be his beloved bride and you will be pure and you will enjoy him for all eternity. That is your destiny. For all eternity being the delight of the God who redeemed us and then overflowing into the lives of those others whom he has redeemed. We will be pure. I don't even think we know the half of what that will mean. Then what that will mean for our relationships. Sometimes we just let pride just get in the way of our relationships. We're hidden. We have shame. We have fears. But can you imagine this coming day that you will have no reason for shame? Nothing that you're trying to hide. No thoughts you're ashamed of. No skeletons in your closet. No haunting memories of past guilt. No more regret. No nagging sense of failure. No moping around or worrying or exploding or venting or blame shifting or hiding or shaming others or shirking responsibility or coveting what others have or jealousy or fear or anger. No, none of that stuff. Joy forever, happiness forever, delight forever, pure and perfected relationships for all eternity as we share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Why don't we sing about this more frequently? Why don't we? This is partially the, the the motivation behind introducing the new song. We will feast in the house of Zion. That's not some metaphor about the current reality of life. This is talking about something we don't yet have. We will sing about something that is coming—the glory of the house of Zion when we're finally brought home. As I was studying, I encountered a hymn that I never heard before. Never heard it sung. I wonder if it's just gone out of print, or uh, it's certainly. Not one that you'd recognize in the modern hymnals. Any of you want to make a melody for it and teach it to the church? I'd be happy to sing this one. The first stanza goes like this: Ten thousand times ten thousand, in sparkling raiment bright, the army of the ransom saints throng up the steep of light. Tis finished; all is finished. Their fight with death and sin. Fling open wide the golden gate and let the victors in. We'll be there, church. We have sung the church's one foundation, which has one of my favorite stanzas. Speaking about that great day that we're brought as a church to be before Christ. Mid toil and tribulation. And tumult of her war, she, that's the church, waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed. And the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Oh, I long for that day. We're reading Narnia, so Narnia quotes keep coming up. We'll finish with one more. And I can't hardly read this without tearing up. But when Jewel, the unicorn, comes finally into his heavenly home, the real and true Narnia, he cries out, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it has sometimes looked a little bit like this. And then he neighs and he cries out, further up, come further in. And so I think the Lord will invite us into glory the day we're brought home. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the glory to come. Let us live like pilgrims who don't sound the trumpets of triumph just yet. That we lament and we mourn, but we look forward with hope. We have set our hope on heaven. And that let us live faithfully lives of holiness and love and purity. May we be motivated not to pursue selfish indulgence, but to let go of the things of this world that is passing away and to grab hold of life Help us to long and ache and wait for that day. Set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.